Was it good to wake up to sunshine this morning? Uh, You're going to be hard pressed, if you can believe it or not, to have the energy as a crowd as what Saturday night did last night. And I don't know how they brought that energy because they dealt with snow and dreariness and our typical February weather. But today, just seeing the sun gave me such a heartening and hearkening to live. So it is good to see you. We are in Overcomer. Uh, We are coming down the home stretch of Overcomer. We're in week six. If you're joining us for the first time today, uh, this is a series that I have loved every minute of it. It's been amazing as we get ready to go into Lent. uh, That's gonna be our next series. Kate was talking about that just moments ago. And, um, And I think it's interesting that we're going to conclude uh, that God providentially planned this. We didn't plan this this way, but coming down the home stretch of our series through Philippians Overcomer, um, dealing with contentment and generosity, two of the things I think that will set us up really, really well for our series going into Lent. So I'm excited for that. And to talk about contentment today, I want to set the stage for you in just understanding some some overarching realities of our society and then how the church plays into that. I want to do that by just just saying that that, that, the historians, uh, anthropologists and sociologists um, have noticed and are alarmed by this reality that never before, never before in the history of the world, have people had as much as what we have in the United States as a developing country and never before in the history of the world have those same people wanted more and more and more. So this issue of contentment is a massive one and it's one we need to pay attention to. In Philippians, Paul, as he's writing the Philippian church, thousands and thousands of years ago, knows this. And in chapter four, which is where we're going to be, so you can go ahead and start turning there. Go to Philippians chapter four. It's near the end of your Bible. Get on your device. As we enter into what Paul has to say to us out of, out of this fourth chapter of Philippians about contentment, I want us to be aware of how critical it is as a follower of Jesus that we do something in understanding and becoming like Christ in this area of contentment. Ruth Whitman said this, she studied uh, contentment and uh, she said this, in the United States, the sheer backbreaking intensity of the American approach to finding happiness is itself insane. It's a strong word. People in America spend more time emotional energy and money in the quest for contentment than any nation on earth. The systematic packaging and selling of happiness is an industry estimated to be worth more than $10 billion, about the same size as Hollywood, that other great purveyor of happily ever after. And here's the issue. If we look at our nation and we say that's true of our nation, this is what's disconcerting in the church. We don't look any different than the world around us in the church. 
We're called to something different. We're called to be images of something that, that, that others can look at and say, what, what, how do they have contentment? What is it that they have that we don't have? We, as the church, look as discontented as the entire rest of the world around us. And that is why it's such a big deal that we dig into this and we understand this more deeply. I think there's, there's the why question immediately strikes me and I'm gonna give you to be sort of thinking on as we go through this passage, I wanna give you three categories that might be causes, our causes, there may be many more. There could be a, a plethora of them that you may deal with that cause discontentment in your life. But I think there are four that are major and primary ones. And the first is social media. And here's why. Social media, as we'll see as we move into this, it is the perfect breeding ground for comparison and envy. It causes, as a tool, it calls us to be looking at everyone else all the time and evaluating our status and our reality based on what everybody else's status and their reality is. Never before in the history of the world have we been socially connected like we are today and capable of that level of considering everyone else's life and what they have instead of our life and what we have. Second thing would be consumerism. Consumerism and commercialism literally bombard us today. I, I was reading different statistics, looking through different articles, and sociologists, anthropologists are like, we, don't, we can't even tell you. We just know that the human brain in the United States today has an antenna that's up there trying to sift through at least thousands, if not tens of thousands of ads and promotions and marketing a day a day that tell us you need more to be happy. What you have isn't good enough. You need more. 10,000 a day, thousands a day. It's insane how much we are pressured to believe that where we are and what we have is not where we should be and is not enough. And then the third, this gets a little, a little bit difficult, but parenting, I think, contributes to discontentment, and it does it over generations. If we were to say that the silent generation maybe actually had a lot less than we do today, but they were more contented, this thing happens inside of generations, and it is that we encourage our children to go out and to want to have more and to strive for more. We want them to be ambitious. We want them to accomplish things. We want them to achieve things. And in our parenting, sometimes as we push them, what can happen is that through the silent generation, then the baby boomers, and, and then the Gen Xers, and then the millennials, and now Gen Z, there's this, there's this constant sense that's almost bred into us that we need to do more, have more, accomplish more than what our parents did and had and accomplished. And so we can, we can join the rat race without any idea that we're doing it. That's generational. That's not any, any, um, any statement against millennials. 
You often hear millennials are more entitled. What the word entitled means is discontented. What I have isn't enough and I'm not sure how to get what I want, but I'm, I want more, I want more, I want more. Those three areas I think contribute in a major way and we'll see them in the passage that we're gonna dig in today. So you've had time. I hope that you're in Philippians uh, chapter four. We're gonna look at what Paul says and we're gonna take a deep dive into these uh, these four verses to hear from the apostle as he describes something just phenomenal. So read along with me, starting in verse 10 of chapter four. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him or Christ who gives me strength. Now that first passage, that, that first sentence, two, sentence or two that he gives us, here's what he says. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern, circle concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. See, there's an odd paradox right here at the beginning of what Paul has to say. There's a dichotomy that I think we need to understand to set us enough at ease to hear what he has to say. He is actually applauding the Philippians who he's writing to because they allowed a concern or an agitation or a stirring in their spirit that something wasn't good enough, something wasn't the way it should be, that they wanted to help, that they wanted to help Paul who is writing in abject poverty in Rome from a house arrest. He did not have what he needed. He says later that he's content even though he had need. However, he's appreciating the Philippians for their concern. If you look in the original languages, concern here is to direct one's mind to a thing, to seek, to strive, to achieve something. And content, which Paul's going to get into in just a second, it means this, strong enough or possessing enough to need no aid or support or independent of one's circumstances. Uh, my daughter right now, uh, Gracie, she's eight, she's in third grade, and, and she has these last couple of months entered what I'm going to describe as a little bit of a, a precarious social situation. Um, with, her, with her, her friends, there's some treacherous uh, navigating that she's doing with friends right now. And it's got to the point over enough conversations where I'm concerned in my spirit. I'm stirred. I'm, I'm affected. I'm agitated. I want to do something for her. What you need to understand is Paul is not condemning. He is not 
putting down. He's not saying don't be affected. Don't, don't let things, just, just be above it all and don't be bothered by things. That's not what he's saying here. And, and I don't want you to walk away immediately thinking, boy, I should just sit back on my laurels the rest of my life and never be concerned with anything, never do anything. Paul is gonna tell us about a different kind of contentment. He's gonna explain contentment a different way. And so just with Gracie, I can be content, but be affected at the same time. I want, to, I want to look at the next passage now because he dives right into contentment. Here's what he says. This is verse 11. I am not saying this because I am in need. He is in need, but he's not saying what he's saying because he's in need. For I have learned, circle learned, to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Here's what I see right here at the beginning. He has learn something. See, contentment is not a disposition. It's a decision. Contentment is not something that you, that just gets dropped on you at birth because it's part of your personality. You just go through life unaffected by things and all, everything's great and it's all honky-dory all the time. That's not the case. Contentment is not something that's just part of your personality automatically. It is a decision that you learn how to do. Here's the deal. Paul is saying, I had to go through school. I had to get schooled by Jesus through experiences in my life. Paul is writing near the end of his life. He's about 60 years old, somewhere in there, and he's about three, four years from death at this point where he's writing. He has been through a tremendous amount. We're talking about one of the most prolific, profound evangelists of the, the, the whole New Testament. This guy is constantly pushing for the kingdom of God. And he is telling us right now, right at the beginning, I had to learn this. This isn't something that you're just automatically gonna become. You're gonna go through experiences and you're gonna, and you're gonna go to school with Jesus and you're gonna learn things. So it's in that spirit that I wanna approach this idea today. You may, you may be a completely discontented person. You might be sitting there thinking, I just, I have no idea how that happens. I don't know what it means to be satisfied or fulfilled with things. I'm pushing all the time. Nothing ever seems to be the way I want it or enough. I want more, better, faster, smarter. You're in a good place today. This is about learning something that we can take from the Lord. And to do that, I want to move actually from the most prolific writer of the New Testament, Paul, as he's talking to us. And I want to move to Ecclesiastes chapter four, the wisest writer of the Old Testament, uh, King Solomon. And we're going to take apart uh, a perspective on our satisfaction or our dissatisfaction from King Solomon. So Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 4, here's what Solomon says to us. And I saw that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Back to Ruth Whitman in her study, she said, despite, despite all the effort and money they are pumping into the endeavor. Americans consistently rank as some of the least contented people in the developed world. 
One recent survey even placed the day-to-day happiness of the American people two places behind the citizens of Rwanda. What is wrong with us? All the effort, all the money, all the toil, all the achievement for this endeavor of happiness, just to find satisfaction, just to be contented with something. And we get on a rat wheel, back to what Solomon said. And I saw that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. See what he's saying is toil, your work and a continuation of your toil and the things you achieve, the circumstances that you manage to procure in your life, the next best thing all the time, it's not gonna cut it for you. In fact, what drives most of that, when we get underneath, when we really look at what is pushing us as people, this is 3000 years ago. This is before social media even happened. It is driven so often. And some of this is hyperbole but not much. So frequently, our achievement is driven by comparing ourselves to other people, by looking at what others have and wanting what they have. And I'm telling you, it is breeding at a a rate so rapid that it's undoing us as people. When you think about what you can do with this phone, this, this device, and you get on your social media and you look at what they have and what they do, pretty soon this is what it becomes. I'm just scrolling, I'm just scrolling, and I'm looking and, oh, yep, I'm a loser, 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 I'm a loser. Oh, my kids are a loser. My, oh, my husband's a loser. Yep, uh, my wife's a loser. Everything I do is a loser. I mean, you get to this point with social media where you are absolutely discontented by the things that you have and the things that you are. All toil or all envy springs from toil and achievement that we push and push by comparing ourselves. So I want you to ask, this question today. I want you to ask yourself, what circumstances in your life do you allow to be driven by comparison or by covert competition with others? We've got five categories that I thought of, and there's more for sure, but there are just five that I want to unpack to kind of set us up for wondering where you might compare yourself with others. The first is material and financial. This is your capacity to buy and your security. How how much can I get of material worth? What can I purchase that will make me happy? More, newer, faster, better, shinier, brighter. And then security, how much can I insulate myself for the possible uh, ills that may befall me in my life? We are also, our culture is one of the most insured uh, cultures in the world. Our society, the United States, is insured against anything and everything you can possibly imagine going wrong. Think of it with me. We spend 65, 70 years of our life preparing for five, maybe 10 years to make sure that in those five or 10 years, we are secure. My 401k, I want to be obsessed with my 401k. Why am I obsessed with my 401k? Because Henry's 401k is better. He made a better decision over here. 
I got to make sure my 401k increases. And so I'm going to toil and I'm going to achieve and I'm going to keep after it and I'm going to chase it. Chasing after the wind. I'm going to keep pursuing it. That is an incredible, beautiful metaphor for us today. It's what it's like when we get in the rat race and we allow it to hold on to us. The second category would be relational. This would be your real kids, your real kids against their ideal kids. Guys, we do this. We do this. I do this all the time on social media typically. But I look and I look at how cute their kid was in that picture. And I look at that cute thing that they said in that picture. And then, and then I see another post in a status update. And I'm like, oh, their kids are so sweet and kind and considerate of other people. And, and I'm like, hey, 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 look at my kids. And I'm, and I'm so impressed with everybody else's kids on this device and, and the way they look there. And then I go right across the street to Meyer and I'm like, oh, <laughs> your kids suck too. <laughs> Relational. Our real kids won't stack up against their ideal kids. They're not good enough. Situational or status, this is positional. You, 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 you know you do this, you know you do. Your staycation that was really awesome. You went around, you went to Pando and you, you, know, you tubed and you went skiing at, at, at um, Cannonsburg and you hung around, you went to the Civic Theater, you watched movies with your kids and it was amazing. And you didn't spend a bunch of money to do it, but then you got on and you saw everybody else's vacation, their glorious sunshine and how tan they got and how amazing they looked and how the white sand beaches were so inviting. And all of a sudden your staycation was the most worthless, miserable, awful experience in life. It wasn't good enough. And, and, and you don't even pay attention to the fact that on their vacation, they spent more, they stressed out more, about the airfare. They had, to, they had to take horse tranquilizers just to convince themselves to get on the airplane. <laughs> and, and they took that one shot where they looked so good 16 different times to crop her waistline, mom's waistline, to look better. <laughs> it's all out the window because your staycation is not good enough. Political or social is the next one. This, you guys... I could, start a, I could probably start a civil war in this room right now <laughs> over political or social comparison. Your party versus their party. Your candidate versus their candidate. Your ideology against their mythology, okay? We, we're constantly doing this right now. And it has made us, this comparison has made us one of the most divided, divisive uh, nation, and I would say even church, because we're not focused on the kingdom of God, we're focused on the kingdom of our political party or our particular ideology. And it makes us hate other people right next to us. Then the last of the five categories, personal, intrinsic. This is emotional. This is, um, this is internal. This is you against you 
against you, against you. This is where uh, the thing you're doing today is not gonna be as good as the thing you did yesterday, and the thing you do tomorrow, there's no way it's gonna be able to hold up to what you did before, and, and the approval that you're longing for, and the affirmation that you want isn't coming, and so you, you're, you're always in your own mind and in your own heart stacking yourself up against yourself, and you, weigh, you, you're, you fall short of the goal. In fact, 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says this. Listen, listen, it's a powerful passage. It says, we do not dare to, to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are not wise. We can get into one of the most vicious cycles imaginable when we start comparing ourselves to ourselves and measuring ourselves against ourselves with what our life looks like and what we think it should look like. And then from comparison comes its ugly step cousin, envy. So comparison, it will, it will lower your contentment quotient and envy will obliterate your contentment quotient. It's been a wrong, it's been a, this has been a, a, around thousands and thousands of years. Obviously Solomon is talking about it. You go all the way back to Genesis, Cain and Abel dealt with envy. This is a part of our human condition that we have got to work on because of God's condition that he can give us. Listen to this, envy is resenting God's goodness in other people's lives and ignoring God's goodness in your own. And I just want to give you a quick story on this. Um, when, when, when I was playing baseball as a, as a little leaguer, I set a goal for myself. I wanted to hit a home run. Okay. I was a good baseball player. I was a good hitter, but I was scrappy. I matured later. So I didn't have quite the muscle. I could, I could beat the throw down to first base, but I could, I could get my, I could get my bat on the ball just about every time. So I was the leadoff hitter and that was good. That was good, but it wasn't good enough for me. I wanted to hit a home run. And so all through little league, that was one of my goals never happened. My first year of pony league, um, 13 years old, I'm starting to mature. I'm starting to get a little bit, a little bit taller. And I started to feel, you know, as I was swinging that bat, there was a little bit more swagger in it. I can really move this thing around. Let's, let's see what happens this year, you know? And one of the first, I remember it like it was yesterday. One of the first games of my first year of pony league, I got up in the, the, this, stupid pitcher threw a fastball I mean meat right down the middle of the plate and I went after it and I hit it and I'll never forget how it felt it was just perfect connection and it took off but you know I'd never hit a, a home run before so I am like screaming down first base and my whole team's yelling at me hey no you hit it out it's gone and I look up and sure enough, it's an out of the park home run. And I got to slow down, do the trot of glory around the bases, you know. <laughs> Came around third base and I looked and there's home plate. My whole team's up to congratulate me. And they're patting me on the back, smacking me on the helmet. And they're just like, awesome job. I'm Such a good feeling. Until 15 minutes later and four hitters later, all first three got on base. And then one of our regular home run hitters, Joe Yeager. <laughs> I was 
still remember his name. Joe Yeager got up and he did such confidence. I wanted to be him, you know. And the pitcher threw one and he just sent it. And I mean, he hit it twice as long as I did. The bases were loaded. It's a grand slam. And I hated him for it. I felt such a sense of worthlessness after a grand achievement and a goal that I had just accomplished. It's amazing to me that I was so happy until a few minutes later when everyone else was so happy for someone else. This is what envy will do. It causes you to resent God's goodness to other people and to totally ignore his goodness in your life. But here's, we need to take a turn here, and here's the turn. Solomon isn't telling us to stop trying or striving. He is not telling us to give up achievement. He is not telling us that that's not a good thing. He wouldn't. Solomon was the self-proclaimed guy who had done everything. Literally said, I've done everything under the sun. I've done it all. That's how he declared himself. Paul, Paul's not telling us to stop striving, to stop achieving, or to stop doing things of worth or value. That's not it at all. Paul is this, uh, this amazing evangelist of the New Testament. He did more single-handedly, some argue, than all 12 of the other disciples by himself, okay? He's an achiever. But I, I, do, I wanna look at what Solomon is saying. So moving out of that first portion there, the, the fourth verse to verse five of Ecclesiastes four, here's what he says. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. And what, is, what does that mean? This is very simply. He said, if you go about life thinking, well then here's the secret to contentment. I just won't do anything. Nothing will matter to me. I'll just fold my hands. If your hands are folded and they're not out and they're not working and they're not striving, you're gonna ruin yourself. Nothing good is gonna come from that. He's saying that's under achievement. There's overachievement, there's underachievement. There's underwhelming, there's overwhelming. If you fold your hands and do nothing, you are not going to be content either. Total minimalism for the purpose of contentment, it's not gonna do it. And then six, he says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with, with toil. This is so profound for us. If, if we have one handful because we worked hard and we, we, we went after it and we tried and we labored and we fulfilled the calling of God in our life, Let's go home, he's saying, at the end of the day, and let's experience the ability to say that was good. What I did was good. That was a good day. I'm now going to enter into my home life with contentment. I'm going to be set. Tranquility, tranquility just means satisfaction. It, it just means uh, it's another word for being fulfilled by what I did. But two handfuls with toil, you're just gonna keep toiling. It's gonna be, he says, a chasing after the wind. There's no end to it. When you grasp and you clutch and you constantly want more because what you have isn't newer and brighter and faster and smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter. You wanna talk about something that's got us on smarter. What's the new smartphone? I need it right now. 
That's how we are with, with anything smart in today's world. He's saying that's a chasing after the wind. It's endless. There's no finish line. It's unquenchable desire. There's no peace. It's continuation without completion. No satisfaction. No rest. So don't, don't be underwhelming. Don't fold your hands and say, it just doesn't matter. I'm going to be content with nothing. No, 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 no. One handful with tranquility. Stay in the purpose, in the place, in the calling that God has given you. Be happy with it. Out of that place, make a difference for the world. Don't, though, turn into the one who goes home and has the opportunity for tranquility and then looks and thinks to yourself, I bet Jenny's still at the office because she's been killing it in sales lately. She's probably gonna work late. She's gonna nail another six sales to meet quarterly earnings that I'll never be able to achieve. Guess I'm gonna have to work longer and be at the office more. Don't let two handfuls suck you into the vortex of discontentment. It's dissatisfaction guaranteed. It's, it's discontentment assured is what Solomon is saying. Here's, here's what, if I could sum up this passage, he says less is actually more when it leads to contentment. Less is actually more when it leads to contentment. You'll be shocked to find something you thought was hiding on the other side of more when you're okay with what you have. So I just want to encourage you. I want to hit a couple of practical things. Anything, okay, anything that stirs you to discontentment, remove it out of your life. Quit scrolling. Quit looking. Quit listening Quit the subscribing, cancel it. Practically, you may need to fast from social media for six weeks. That'd be a really good idea for Lent coming up, for the Lent series. I, I would challenge some of you to do that. You may be the happiest you have ever been after that six weeks. You may actually have friends. <laughs> not, not friends not connectivity. You, you may actually be more satisfied with your kids, more satisfied with your life, more satisfied with your spouse. Here, here's one, your sex life might improve, folks. When, when your bedroom is not invaded by this thing and all your dissatisfaction, you might end that six weeks going, wow, it's amazing. And in nine months, we're gonna see the fruit of that labor. <laughs> blessing. He called him a blessing. <laughs> you may need to hide a certain person or page from your feed. If you're not going to fast from social media, there may be some people or some pages that you know trigger discontentment because you compare yourself and you're envious of them all the time. You may need to quit a news outlet. Do you know that pundits try to make you discontent? because they know if you're discontent, you'll come back for more. Pundits, political pundits, that is an objective of theirs. I don't care whether it's CNN or Fox News. 
if we can make them agitated, if we can make them worked up, if we can make them feel like the whole world is falling apart and World War III is going to break out, even though there's not a chance World War III is going to break out. But if we can convince them that that's possible, they'll be back for more. You may need to limit interaction with a certain person. And you know who that person is. You, you may need to stop watching home improvement shows because all you can do is sin when you see that mansion they live in and you think of the pathetic little shack that God has given you with a leaky roof and a little mini fridge. You know, the more home improvement you shows, or shows you watch, the more shiplap will show up in your house. or white rooms. What's the thing with white rooms? Everything's white all the time. I'm like, I don't like white. My kids touch it once and it's dirty. <laughs> or, I, you know, I'll leave you with this, but you may need to stop uh, going to the boat show. You may need to stop going to the RV show. You may need to stop going to the garden show. You may need to stop going to the gun show. You may need to unsubscribe from, cat, from catalogs. This is convicting for me. No, I do nothing but sin when the Cabela's catalog arrives in the mail. <laughs> so I want you to think about practical things that you can eradicate. Now let's move from this. Let's move from comparison and envy. Again, I want you to think if there are things I can pull out of my life, if there are things I can reduce in my life, comparing myself with others is one, envying others is certainly one. The, the more you can get rid of those, the more your contentment will increase. Now I wanna look at what Paul and Solomon say, do the, add these things, increase these things in your life and you will see your contentment quotient increase. So verse 12 says this, I know what it is. This is from back in Philippians from Paul. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned, there's that word again, the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I think it is astonishing to me when you look at that, how true it is that it really doesn't matter if you're in want or you're in plenty. The King James says abased, so everything is debased. There's not the value you want or, or everything is bountiful and it's abounding over here and you've got more. It doesn't seem to matter to us really at the end of the day, whether we have everything or we have nothing. That does not directly make us content or discontent is what Paul is saying. What's the secret then? He literally calls it a secret. What is the secret? I want to jump back to Solomon, verse seven of Ecclesiastes. Here's what Solomon goes on to say. He says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. Listen to this. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. Now that first there was a man all alone, circle all alone. Here's the deal. We are desperate for real community and for real friendship as people. Connectivity 
in our world tries to substitute itself for community. We're falling prey to it and it's destroying us. I'm talking about real interaction with real people where they really are rather than being possessed of an ideal that's just not true. I'm telling you, uh, the number of times that I look at other men and I'm like, and I'm looking at their, right after their gym picture, right? Right after they finished their workout. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what an ideal physique. He's so swole. And you know what happens if I know that guy and I'm ever over at that guy's house right after he's been in the bathroom dropping a deuce and he comes out, he doesn't look that way. He's messy too. His life has real problems and real issues and he's trying to work through those things. You know, one of the things we will continue always to do because God tells us to do this is to continue gathering together, not to give up even all the more as we see the day approaching. We are going to do life groups. We're gonna create community everywhere we have the opportunity to. Real friendship that you can get in that actually is a catalyst for being a part of someone's life that brings about true satisfaction, true fulfillment, because you're in it together. You're not looking at something that's not even close to what's real. So community, look at, look at, I saw a man all alone. We don't want to be all alone, is what he's saying. We want to be together. We want to do life together. Get in a life group. Get some friends, some acquaintances. Grab the book and say, hey, let's read this together through the Lent series. Call someone and hang out with them. Don't text them. Call them. The second thing here. He had neither son nor brothers. Really interesting. You got to know a little bit of the context of the Old Testament. See, if he didn't have son or brother, he had no one to leave his earnings to. He had no one to leave a legacy to because women could not inherit. So what Solomon is saying right there is this guy's doing all that he's doing. He's on the hamster wheel, the rat race that he is chasing, the, the wind that he's chasing that's unquenchable. He's, there's not even a person or reason for Who's he doing it for? Why is he doing it? Listen, John is gonna preach next weekend on generosity and giving. So you have to come back in here. He's gonna crush it. It's gonna be awesome. I can't steal his thunder or I'll make my bald brother really mad at me if I do that. <laughs> but I do want you to know that when you get into relationships where it is more about what you can give to the other than what you can get from the other, when you care more about uh, being a catalyst for that other person, when your selfishness is put aside for the self, for the interest of the other instead of self-interest, you will never be more satisfied or fulfilled than when you're living to create for others something rather than for yourself. Generosity and giving is crucial to add, add that to your life in order to increase your contentment quotient. And then he goes on and he says this, still in that verse, he says, there was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Here's, here's what I wanna say. 
If there's no end to the toil, then the continuation alone is the burden. He's chasing the wind. Solomon says it again here. He's chasing the wind. There's a constancy to this that is depressing. There is, a, there is a constancy to this that causes anxiety. There's no point at which he actually stops, either stops his mind or stops his effort or stops his, his toil and his pursuit of something. We need to build into our lives Sabbath and celebration. We need to, to make a point to say there will be an end to my toil. I'm gonna, I'm gonna complete it. It's gonna be good. I'm gonna set it over there. I'm gonna go on to something else. We need this so desperately. This is rest and rejoicing. So I'm asking you, what are you doing in your life to consciously stop the toiling, stop your effort, and to say, we're gonna party. We're gonna celebrate together. We're gonna go out to dinner. We're gonna play a game together tonight. We're gonna spend time as a family together. We're gonna watch a movie together and that's gonna be enough. That's gonna be good. We're gonna rest. We're gonna look at someone else's success, someone else's achievement, and we're gonna celebrate it. We're gonna take joy in the fact that there is goodness occurring in their life. Rest and rejoicing, add that to your life. Sabbath, celebrate and do it together. And then Thanksgiving and appreciation. Now, next weekend, uh, John is gonna preach on, um, on generosity. And three weekends ago, he preached on Thanksgiving and appreciation. So he totally stole my thunder from this. Uh, but it is there evident in the passage. And what I need you to be thinking about is that it is critical. In fact, I would encourage you to get online and go back and I would encourage you to watch that message on Thanksgiving and appreciation that John gave because you will experience greater contentment when you are living a thankful and a grateful life as a discipline something you've learned, something that you are purposely doing and adding, it will increase contentment in your life. All right, he finishes up, Solomon finishes up with this statement. He says, for whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This is just critical. And so I want, I want you to be asking questions. This is, this is how I wanna kind of wrap up today. I wanna be thinking about good questions that get underneath all of our dissatisfaction and all of our lack of fulfillment in life. I want you to go to a place where you're asking really critical questions to your soul. And, 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 and just start with this one. Who am I doing this for, really? That's all he's saying. For whom? Am I toiling? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Why are you doing what you're doing? Here, here it is. What's, what's really driving you? Really? What, what, what am I trying to prove? Who am I trying to prove it to? This is, this is crucial. This is a question to wrestle to the ground with Jesus in your faith. Why do you stress 
yourself out the way you stress yourself out? For what are you toiling? What's the real reason? I'm gonna pick on parents one more time, just real quick, okay? There, there may be parents in here, mom, dad, I don't know, that, that would answer, well, my kids, I'm doing what I'm doing for my kids. They're the reason that I'm toiling. They're the reason I'm striving. They're the reason I'm never content. They're the reason I'm dissatisfied with all of my life. But then I'm gonna come back at you. I'm gonna ask you this question. Are your kids waking you up at 6 a.m. and saying, hey, you need to get to work. You gotta make more sales because that 401k is not growing the way it should be. If that's your answer, are your kids really there making you coffee? And if they are, you got incredible kids, I envy you. <laughs> but are they making you coffee and getting your breakfast ready so you can read a little bit more on the stock exchange before you head out? Or if you honestly ask that question, do your kids just desperately want more time with you? If you honestly ask that question, will you find that what your kids long for is your presence? They don't care one iota about whether you achieve that next thing you want to achieve. And then here's the flip side of it. Some of us, some of us are chasing approval because we think we'll find contentment in it, trying to prove something to a parent that's deceased, that's already gone. They, they'll never see it, even if you get it. Why are you doing what you're doing? And then that's where we're gonna end here with Paul It's one of the most famous passages in scripture, but this is what he says at the end of these uh, four verses. His last statement is, I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. And here's what we do. Here's what we do because we so often have that myopic perspective. We take that verse and we take it to mean, I can get more. I can do more. I can achieve greater. I can accomplish all the dreams. I, I, can, I can do the thing that I wanted. Uh, Jesus will give me strength to, to, to fill all the holes and all the gaps that, um, that, I, that I feel like I need to attain. All the things, all the circumstances and situations, Jesus will come in and he'll fix all the circumstances and the situations. That is not at all what Paul is saying. Go back through the previous three verses. What Paul is saying is that I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. What he can do is he can be content. He can learn to be content. That's what Christ is gonna give him strength to do. Not fix all the circumstances, not repair all the situations, not become all of a sudden um, uh, the, the, the CEO of your company. And then listen to Hebrews. Hebrews uh, 13, five says this, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. 
For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Look, it's an interesting thing for the author of Hebrews to put together. Don't covet, that is don't envy. Be content because Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Here's what I wanna submit to you, church. If you ask that question, why do I do what I do? Who do I do what I do for? And you answer it ultimately in any other way than I do it for Jesus, you will not be able to be content. If you cannot answer that question, that why and who question with the name of Jesus Christ, then contentment is gonna to continue to be elusive. You're gonna keep chasing the wind. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna find your entire life gone and you're gonna look back at it and you're gonna say, why did I do it? What did I do it for? What Paul is saying is Jesus is the reason. Relationship, experience with him, learning through him doing what you do because of his goodness as your creator God who will fill you and fill all the places of dissatisfaction, who will come in and who will be the one that can cover everything, whether in need or in plenty. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So I want you to be thinking as we listen to this song, I want you to reflect on those questions. I want you to think about who Christ is to you and the relationship that you have with him. Let's go ahead and listen to this.
Lord, we want you more than anything. We just pray this morning that all our striving, all our working, all our effort, all our energy, we create a boundless and limitless economy in the kingdom of God. That we would be given over to you that our satisfaction and our fulfillment would be found in our relationship with you, God. And today I just pray as your spirit is moved that we would leave here having learned something more about being content in you and that we would begin to put that into practice in a way that changes our life. in a way that speaks of the power of God in us, of the presence and relationship that satisfies. And that is you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for coming. You're dismissed.